estadio, España se viste de fiesta, se ve la pipión en el campo, que ondea banderas inquietas, se van ocupando las gradas, se escuchan alegres canciones, y así la gente exaltada aplaude siempre a los study up then I don't think football is for you now we obviously agree that basically modern football is rubbish and that therefore how we 
deal with that is to dip our toe in the waters of nostalgia. And joining me on that boat is a man who will literally do anything to take his mind off the events of this week. It's Paul O'Neill. Good afternoon. Not been the best week for you, Paul, it has to be said. Uh, no, no, it really hasn't. Not in terms of football, anyway. Um, in fact, it's, I've got as far as to say it's been one of the worst weeks I've had for quite a while. And considering we're in the fucking championship, that's saying something. So, uh, I mean, it seems to have... Um... It seems to have kind of uh, inspired you to wear some sort of uh, James Bond stroke man from Ultra outfit. <laughs> it's just a black jumper. My, my hood is sitting almost like a turtleneck, but it's just a hoodie. Right, Jose, you're going to have to stop making all that noise. Now you've got someone in front of the camera. No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> well, as you see, we now are also joined by a man who has completely lost his mind. It's the unwelcome return of Alan Jose. All right, there's a god. Who's been off the podcast a month and seems to have completely forgotten how to do it. Um, <laughs> I'll just say one thing. Every movement, every wee touch is heard by your audience. Okay, so our football special. Now, it is a special. It's a special time. I don't know why, but there you go. Um, it's Espana 82, and it's the first World Cup I remember. It's probably the first World Cup Jose remembers, or he'll claim to be Argentina, which we all know is rubbish. And Paul uh, was three and a half years for being born. Um, now, this was in the kind of backdrop. Um, football was starting to be shown. This is actually the first World Cup, believe it or not, that was actually shown worldwide on the telly. Um, we had the previous 1980 European Championship, which was not shown in Britain. <laughs> which is probably why nobody ever remembers it or has seen any of the footage in any of the fucking games, which West Germany won uh, in Italy. Um, but we'll come on to so we've got a, a strange setup with the World Cup. There was two group sections, semis and finals. So we'll go over the first group sections a wee bit in detail, a wee bit no. And we picked out f- uh, for four games. Is that four games we picked out um, regarding uh, these games? And the first one, Paul, was um, Argentina nil, Belgium one, which was the holders coming in. There was two players in the tournament that everybody was seen to watch out for. One of them was of course Diego Maradona, but the Belgians took care of them. They did. Aye, I think it was a shock for everybody. Um, obviously, Argentina were the the reigning champions, and uh, it's just it was it's one still. But everybody talks about that game. It was a really really enjoyable game as well when you watch it. For one 0 there was loads of chances, um, and I'd probably say over what I remember for watch, watching it back is Belgium deserved it. Aye. I mean, there was also that famous photo with Maradona taking on all, all the players, and everybody will have have seen that, but. Um, Aye, they, they seem to sort of have the measure of Maradona in that game. I don't know if it would be like if he felt the pressure a wee bit having to carry some of that, but uh, aye, Belgium, Belgium took care of them and deservedly so as well. I mean, Jose, Belgium in, that, in this period in the 80s, right through, they were always one of these kind of teams that hung about and were pretty decent, you know, without yeah, actually aye. going and winning anything. Aye, I mean, they always had they always had really good players. I can mind sort of growing up and stuff. A uh, player that I absolutely loved was like Enzo Schifo. Mm-hmm. And it was like, Belgium always seemed to have like quite a lot of good players. I mean, you kind of look through all their history and they've always had at least one or two really half decent players. It was like, like players like, uh, what was his name, Frankie Verkauter and stuff like that. It was like, they've always had like properly, properly decent players. And it's only really now, I would say, where 
they kind of have put it together. Aye. They kind of have put it together where it's like it's actually the full squad. It's rather than it being sort of three or four really outstanding players. They've now got a really really good squad now. But they've always they've always produced a lot of good players. I mean, I suppose it shouldn't be that surprising. It's not that much we are a country than Holland, and we always think of Holland as being producing absolutely stacks of world class players and whatever. Belgium is right next to it. It's got a kind of quite similar sort of football culture. And I suppose it shouldn't be that surprising, but it always feels absolutely shocking to everybody that Belgium are actually quite fucking good. Aye, I mean, it's interesting that they've put in management the now kind of students of the game, your studious kind of guys, who clearly was like, all we need you today is make sure these brilliant world-class players can play, you know, and that's exactly what they've done. Another thing they produced, Paul, was for years, was, and still to this day, I would say, is brilliant strips. Aye, aye, that's an absolute classic. The one through the 80s is... I don't think it could look more eighties if it tried. It's for sort of the, the bright yellow trim on it and stuff as well. It's an absolute beauty. Um, I think they tried to recreate one similar to it a couple of years back as well. Um, and it was really smart. But I, I think the colours it's just so stark. I think it works really well with a kit. So that that was the first game of the tournament, obviously, and um, it was a real real shock. It was you know something similar happened to Argentina, obviously in nineteen ninety with the Cameroon game, but. A game mm-hmm. I know you're desperate to get your teeth into, Jose, was France 4, Kuwait 1. Can you just kind of let our younger listeners, what exactly happened in this game? The, uh, I, it was actually a gubbin. It was actually a complete fucking gubbin. You turn and you look at it and it's like, that's a, that's an entirely deserved result. And it, was, it was like, that completely reflected what the game was like. It's just goals just fucking raining in. And it was like, there was loads of other chances. Could be more than that. Could be more than that, but it wasn't an unfair reflection in the game at all. Oh yeah, I was actually <laughs> Paul. What I was trying to entice him to say, I don't know what he was babbling about there, was about the fact that the uh, Kuwait managed to get a goal chopped off for France. Aye, and then uh, the Sheik come on the pitch, didn't he? Uh, and that's started what I was to... trying to get you to talk about. Was he? No, this garbage of goals. <laughs> <laughs> Aye, but but that, sorry, aye, that that was kind of, that was kind of the thing though. It was like that was an entirely deserved result, but like they still went absolutely fucking berserk about it. Well, they it still up, went absolutely pick it up as you were saying there, Paul. I I I, I, I it was uh, the sheik came on and stopped the game, didn't he? Because he was going absolutely nuts about the about the goal. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was basically refusing to continue the game. As far as I was aware, and then they, they came off the park. Go for France, that is. Aye, they go for France, and they came off the thing to bring a, bring the game to an end. It was the fact that the goal chalked off. The referee did then chalk off the goal. Mm. <laughs> yeah, there was, uh, and it was the pure, uh, you know, the guy. It was exactly how it, the guy, if I remember, right, he was wearing the old headgear and all that, and the suit and whatever. And, you know, that was the kind of one of the, you know, where. You know, you're used to people invading the pitch and all that in this era, but no, no like that. And and certainly the viewers were kind of like, what on earth is going on? Paul, probably the shock result of that uh, first round was Spain now in the North Island one, which of course was I, you know Spain were hosting the tournament and um, Jerry Armstrong scored the winner after forty seven minutes. Aye, they did. Spain obviously they had a bad start as well, drawn with Honduras, so they they weren't in a great a great place and they beat Yugoslavia after that, but. Armstrong, it was right after half time, wasn't it? And, um, the, the thing with the goal was it was a it was a easy enough finish, but the the move came for Armstrong himself, so he won the ball back and driving driving up the park like fifty yards and then playing it wide and getting himself in the middle. The keeper made a bit of 
I may say it, but um, aye, and one one nil. I, I think you kind of thought that um, Spain would have plenty of time to get back in the game, and a goal would come. Mm-hmm. But, but I never, Northern Ireland were resolute. But I think it came to a point where a one nil done them both to to, yeah. to go through. It was. I mean, they had Ireland had some obviously some good players: Jay Armstrong, Billy Hamilton, uh, Martin O'Neill, Mal Donaghy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was aye, it was shocking. It was Luis Arcanada was a goalkeeper. Uh, you were talking about who had a stark resemblance to Father Caris, uh, the Exorcist. <laughs> I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Uh, and the last standout, Ozzy, just because of the actual result, is Hungary ten, Ireland Salvador one. Aye, an absolute fucking doing. And El Salvador in other games, they weren't actually that bad. But in that game, it was just every time, every time Hungary went out of the park, they just fucking scored. And it was, aye, it was an absolute doing. Like, mm. it was, you, you, just, you see the goals as well. And there's so many goals at, throughout the whole tournament, actually, where there's just players in the middle of the box completely fucking unmarked. And I think there was about 40 of the goals that were like that. Aye. But it's like the ball just gets played to somebody and they just fucking basically sweep it in the goals and they've got all the time in the world to do it. And it is, it was, it was absolutely mental. Fucking much I mean, focus on deeper, that, uh, exactly that. And just talking about what they got, I mean, what I noticed as well is, you know, something about the way the nets were, they were kind of a wee bit looser. <laughs> the, the tango football. The Copa Mundial boots that were basically worn by everybody, you know, that just kind of, you're talking about cool earlier, Paul. But mm-hmm. of course, unbelievably, or, or suppose not so at the time, Scotland managed to qualify. Uh, <laughs> Scotland always did at the time. So we thought we would take a, a deep dive into uh, the group sections of that and go through game by game, pundit by pundit. So the first game, of course, was Scotland versus New Zealand, which I will delve into. Now, <laughs> People should know at this time that um, when Scotland was on a major uh, tournament, everybody watched it, you know. It was, um, it wasn't just a case of football fans. I mean, your mother, anybody who was, did, didn't matter what, you know, they watched it. And obviously, what was, certainly where I lived, and I lived in a long block, you know, people just side by side by side. When Scotland scored a goal, you could hear it reverberate around the whole scheme, you know. Mm. People gone fucking bananas, like, you know. And then, of course, this game against New Zealand. Now, New Zealand... You know, um, it's a kind of strange anomaly with New Zealand, right? Because um, they had 12 players in the squad that were, were born in England. <laughs> Which obviously there's been the kind of... I mean, the manager, um, a guy called John Ashhead, was actually born in Fleetwood in Lancashire. <laughs> um, so they had... Uh, and then, you know, Scotland... Um, had scored three early goals Kendall Lee scored in 18 minutes John Watt 30 and 32 and in typical Scottish fashion everybody was like we're going to win this fucking World Cup like. <laughs> I mean as well just keeping us in now um, and yeah I remember I can just distinctly remember just sitting there cruising like, who the fuck are New Zealand anyway like you know and then of course uh, Scotland uh, versus uh, New Zealand you're thinking 3-0 up let's go second half of that New Zealand scored two goals um, by a guy, Sumner and Wooden, who were both English. One was from um, Blackpool and one was from Birkenhead. <laughs> Which, again, I didn't think was merely made a lot of at the time. But uh, So at that point, you went from 3-0 and cruising to, for fuck's sake, we're going to actually get beat here, you know, off of fucking New Zealand. And I remember that. I remember sitting in the house, me, my man, dad, whatever, and the dog, and just everybody was just in stunned silence. Like, what the fuck is going on? Um, 
And of course, the thing is about New Zealand is that um, what people should remember is really the one standout player that they had was a guy called Winton Roofer, who at the time um, was playing for Norwich, although never actually played a game for them. Signed for them, never played a game for them. Um, and you might think that that would have been the height of his career, but this is typically the way football was, that uh, he actually went to Werder Bremen in uh, 1989 to 1994, played 174 games and scored 59 goals. Was Oceana Footballer of the Century, no bad, and you think, well, I mean, you can't get any better than that, surely for a player for New Zealand. Well, I can go one better. He was actually the top scorer in the Champions League, 93 94. Okay. That's absolutely fucking incredible. Considering he's in the World Cup in 1982 and he can't get a game with fucking Norwich. Um, <laughs> it's fucking bizarre. But Scotland rallied and uh, John Robertson scored a good goal in 74 minutes. And then Steve Archibald scored a typical Steve Archibald goal and that he didn't look like he meant it. Um, and it has to be said, Gordon Strachan set up four of the goals that night. Right. Um, interesting we um, tidbit was that Willie Miller was dropped for this game and um, he played Jock Steen played Alan Evans and Alan Hansen and uh, Willie Miller was convinced the only reason that Jock Steen had played Alan Evans is because Aston Villa had just won the European Cup and he was like I fucking only gain him this way so he said by the time he sees the, the team was picked the day before he sees about two years before the game he said, they're just about to leave. He said, I'm going to confront him now. I can't do it at the game. And he stormed into the hotel office where Steen was occupying. And he said, I'm raging. The fucking neck muscles are busted out. And all that. I'm ready to explode about not getting picked. And Steen says, oh, Willie, thank Christ you're here. He says, hey, what is it? He says, I might have a word with you. He says, I'm keeping the good players for the result game, all right? So, and he said, that was it. That was it. What else can you say then? <laughs> I don't think the guys, boys can handle it, can so. <laughs> I remember it was a very similar bit of psychology Ian Monroe used to play with Hibs and all that got a cap for Scotland under Joe Steen and he said can you believe it like him he's absolutely petrified he's fucking, he says what the matter I'm, I'm not good enough I'm not this I'm not that and, uh, no confidence and he, he picked in the team to play and he's just before the game and Joe Steen comes over to him and he just goes to him Ian look after the young boys tonight will you and that was it <laughs> And he suddenly, you know, he felt like he belonged there, you know, and that was a kind of psychology. But I, it was, um, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things about it. First of all, I mean, Scotland scored five goals in a World Cup game, you know, a World Cup group game. I didn't give a fuck who that's against. That's still good. Um, and, you know, you, you look at some of the players at Scotland and it's, you know, Dalglish, John Watt, John Robertson, you know, Archibald. You know, Archibald would replace Maradona at fucking Barcelona. Dalglish is a European Cup winner. Um, Robertson's a two-time, you know, uh, you, you just wonder how did, and we've got Joe Steen as manager. Now, it has to be said, I don't think Joe Steen was ever the same man or manager after the car crash that he had in 1975, but you think all these players and that great management, and of course we've got Jim McLean as assistant manager as well, no, no shrinking violet in the management game, but, you know, we've managed to concede two goals to New Zealand, which sets us up, Paul, for the big one against Brazil. Can I, can, I, can I just quickly go just one thing that I, that I actually read which I was completely unaware of uh, the New Zealand game Jock Steen went to New Zealand with Archie McPherson to turn around and watch them considering that like considering the 78 World Cup like Ali McLeod had not a clue who any of the crew players were and he was like I'm not fucking doing that there's absolutely no danger so he went to fucking New Zealand and it was like apparently it was like it was an entire week trip to turn around and watch them play one game 
<laughs> and it was against somebody absolutely horrendous. Well, and it was, I there was there was preparation for that World Cup, which wasn't in place in the nineteen seventy eight. Thing about that, people might go, "Fucking, why did they take Alex McPherson?" That journalists used to do that quite a lot. Not necessarily goal manager, but they would scout teams and players for managers. You know, when we actually had real journalists in the country, it has to be said. But um, okay, Paul, I built you up there, and Hosey just jumped in with some fucking thing. I'm going to build you up again. It's Scotland versus Brazil. Hi. Um... Obviously, the one that everybody in Scotland would have been looking forward to at the time, um, seeing what kind of Brazil team was going to turn up as well, considering the, the styles that they played the last couple of World Cups. But um, I think looking back at it as well, you talk about nostalgia. It's, it's amazing when you watch like, the telly. It has that be sort of fuzz. Kind of like you can almost see aye, the heat aye, coming aye, off it when, exactly when mean, watching it. And uh, like the sound of the crowd, it was like... Wasn't it properly clear? It was grainy when you listen back uh, to it, but it still had that distinctive sort of samba say, noise. It's, it's just it felt like that. that. The commentary, right? Mm. Commentary's moved on by this point. You know, in the sixties and seventies, commentary was basically in England. It was Alan Clark one nil, <laughs> and that's it. In Scotland, it was Arthur Monford gone. What a chance! What a run! What a <laughs> shot! What a goal! And that was it. Commentary now is becoming mere descriptive. Pundits are starting to come in. And as you see, that greeny commentary you get, along with the pictures, it, there is something just magical about that. Aye, definitely. That's, that's what I mean. It was the noise coming through the crowd as well. It was like a big sea of yell behind the goals. Mm. And you could hear like samba music. It's in Seville, it eh? I was in Seville. I, I think it was a decent crowd. There was like 48,000, something like that. I think it was... Um, it just gave you a proper feeling like who you're facing in the World Cup. You're, you're not playing New Zealand now, you know what I mean? You're in the big time. And uh, and like you just think of the pictures of the, even that Brazil team coming out the like the bills of the stadium coming up the stairs. It looked like they were gladiators going to battle and the Scottish players lining up against them looked almost like a different species. <laughs> about a foot shorter than them half even as well. Um obviously for the game though, like uh, Scotland took the lead via David Neri, which was an absolute beauty. Obviously, the the famous topo comment for, comment for Jimmy Hill, which haunted him till the day he died, unfortunately. Um, but also, it was an absolutely amazing goal. Um, but there was obviously that feeling that everybody talked about after it that we we upset them. Aye. I think Alan Hansen talked about it as well. Aye. He says, I think I think it's quite obvious we upset them. And then Brazil were just after after goal when they're doing Brazil were just incredible. It was a kind of performance that helped sort of helped. Um, set them apart in that tournament why everybody remembers them for the, the type of team they were the goals like Zico, Oscar, Edar and Falcao were the, were the goal scorers and I think this game probably had three three of the goal of the tournament contenders with Neri uh, Zico's free kick where Ruffs was kind of rooted to the spot uh, which became Ruffs trademark just looking at the ball flying into the top corner well, and then see, Edar's I, chip I believe you wanted to try and exonerate Alan Ruff for these goals well I, I don't Everybody slags Alan Ruff for the sort of rooted to the spot one for the Zico uh, free kick, but my question is, what the fuck is he going? To, what's he going to do about it? But can I just stop, you, stop you there now, Paul? Because you Hosey will remember this as well. It was that sort of tournament that this Scottish goalkeepers thing started. Uh, Greavesy in particular, and the Saint and Greavesy would slaughter uh, uh, goalkeepers. But people have to remember. But the reason why it was so like, what the fuck with Alan Ruff is that Alan Ruff was a fantastic goalkeeper. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? There was a game I read about, um, I don't know if you remember this, I think it was the year later, 
where uh, it was, oh, sorry, the season later, I beg my 82 83, and it was Rangers against Hibs at Ibrox, and everybody was talking about how many goals Rangers were going to score because Davy Cooper was good at free kicks. And Alan Ruff, apparently, John Gregg said after he'd never seen a goalkeeping performance like it in his life. Alan Ruff yeah. literally just saved everything, like, you know, so he was cruelly labelled with that, but I think, I mean, whilst I think he could have at least died for the fucking goals, um, I think he was, um, and as you say, I think, I mean, I, I don't know if you remember this at the time, Ozzy, I remember distinctly that feeling when David Neary scored, and I've had it in feelings in Champions League games with Celtic, like scoring against PSG first, and you're thinking, oh, fuck, what have we done that for? Like, And I remember that <laughs> feeling as well. Um, but We've scored too early. We've I, scored too early. <laughs> And it was uh, like like that when people say, "Oh, it's a great thing to score." Fucking any team's a great thing to score. You know what I mean? But what I love about it, just before you talk about that Brazil thing, Paul, is that we scored a goal that day that was Brazilian esque. That mm-hmm. didn't fit any a fixture like that. I don't think anybody would have picked David Neri to score, be the scorer of the goal. But fucking what a goal it was! Uh, no, it was it was incredible, but. Um, as I say, like I think there was probably three goal of the tournament contenders in there. It was equals free kick, and then Ader's one. And I, I know you think uh, Ruff might have done better for that one as well. But um, just the football and the finish, like even even Socrates after it said it was a a sexy, gorgeous goal. So if, if Socrates is getting that kind of stamp, I think that's good enough. And so Ruff, so Ruff basically did I, nothing I, mean, I could do. The, the free kicks, I think I said these before. I heard that, or read that when Zico went to Udinese and he was practicing his free kicks in the ground pre-season. He kept hitting the bar, and he was like, "There's mm-hmm. something fucking wrong here." And he got the groundsman to check it, and the fucking bar was three uh, inches shorter than it should have been. And so <laughs> they had to, when, it, when they went, went higher, he started scoring the free kicks again, which is it's funny because obviously we, we were followed by a guy on Twitter who done the this guy Stuart Horsfield who done the, the glorious failure of eighty two, and he talks about Zico being his favourite player. And mm-hmm. I wonder what you think about this, Rosie. He, he, he did say, why why does Zico never get talked about in the, 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 the kind of pattern on uh, great players? I, I think he does. I think he does, but he's no, he's probably no considered to be in the same height as like a Maradona or anything, but he's like, he's in the sort of next tier. Mm-hmm. He's in the sort of next tier doing after the ones that have like had a legitimate show to be, oh, this is the greatest player ever. Zico's been... people you're talking about. Cruyff, Platini, well, you know. Cruyff and Platini, like, there's probably periods where they're the best, where they're the best players in the world. Oh, aye, definitely. And I'm, no, and I'm not sure that Zico is because at the point where he's about, you're talking about like so mid seventies. It's like well, you go Beckenbauer or whatever, and then by the time you're into the eighties, it's Maradona. Mm. So I suppose you kind of have to be the best player in the world to actually get that. I mean, my my one in that Brazil team, I think Socrates is a better player. Though. I think Socrates is a better player than Zico. Socrates was absolutely fucking phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Well, I think as well, Zico not winning, winning the World Cup, I think if he'd won it, mm-hmm. he'd be remembered for that tournament. Well, I like, well, he was remembered for it anyway. The first time I saw Zico play was in the World, I think it was called the Intercontinental Cup at the time against Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Now at the time, you know, we certainly never saw any South American football on the fucking telly, right? This is in 1981. Liverpool won a European Cup as far as we're concerned, they're the best team in Europe and that, that's it. And I remember distinctly what, I think it was in Japan, it might have been, in, I think it was in Japan where they played Flamenco and Zico tore Liverpool to shreds. Never scored, but just absolutely ran riot. 
And I remember just wa- I watched it on the it was it was on like on the morning, kind okay, with the time difference whatever. And I remember just watching who the fucking hell was this? I probably never swore, but you know he literally the lady had ever done that at Liverpool. And it's, mm. it's quite funny because I've read a book about Liverpool and that um, it's amazing how history glosses over things that period and it's Liverpool despite obviously winning four European Cups and all that in the leagues there was a lot of times that we weren't that great you know and they admitted after it that fucking you know Bob Paisley had basically told them this will be a walkover you know didn't worry about it lads again I'm getting the piss and whatever you only play against the Champions of Brazil and South America they can't be any fucking well, good that's the thing and, <laughs> but they went to um you know, like they made the same thing in '84 when they went to play Rome, Roma, in Rome. They went to Israel for a week on the piss before it. <laughs> it was just like, and he said, like, you know, the club at the time were gone. Oh, they shouldn't have a home game for the final. Whereas soon as success, they were like, no, fuck that. You know, we let's go and play them. But Lawrence, I definitely fucking hang me. But aye, Zico then, I mean, he just tore Liverpool to shreds, and that was a real kind of like, wow, who is this guy? Like, you know, yeah. and and I think that mystique as well was where. That's going to the next time I'm going to see him, or we're going, we're going to see him play. Is the World Cup because you're not going to get any footage. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean that that was totally it because there was so little actual football on the telly that you were actually seeing. It's like you might very occasionally see a clip if there was something amazing happened, but that was it. That was it. It was say uh, what was the program midweek program? What was the midweek program that was on BBC? It was like Sports Night. That's the one. Because uh, that one, that would have a, usually have the occasional clip for like sort of something, something that amazing that had happened, like elsewhere. But that's the only time you would see it. You never see a full game. Mm-hmm. So the World Cups at that point, that's the only chance you're getting to see the best players in the world. Mm. Like that is literally the only chance because they only they only playing every week. You wouldn't you wouldn't see fucking Scottish football on the telly. No, it's like true. you would get highlights. You would get highlights for one game every week. That's it. That's all you would ever actually see. And so you. The players, that, the players that you knew in Scottish football were through going to games. There was through going to games that was not a day we liked so watching them on the telly. What I'm mm-hmm. loving about the era we're in now, technological-wise, is that there's games I never, ever saw highlights of that I was at that are appearing, you know? <coughs> and sometimes you've got stuff kind of imprinted in your head and it's like, fuck, that's not how that was at all. You know, mm-hmm. it's amazing how that bit goes. But, aye, so obviously um, a 4-1 defeat, which was, you know, the worst... Um, which lead us on to Scotland versus the USSR and Jose or Scotland have to do is win Aye all they have to do is win but they were playing a good side like Soviet Union were, a, were actually a properly good side it was one where having a look at their squad it's there was four Dynamo Tbilisi players uh-huh. there was eight players for Dynamo Kiev in the squad and that was something that Soviet Union used to do all the fucking time. It was like they always used to draw really heavily on like the best sides in the country. Mm-hmm. But I was reading I was reading up on them a wee bit. And what basically happened is like Dynamo Tbilisi, they were basically like the top of the pyramid in Georgia. Uh-huh. They were top of the pyramid in Georgia. So all the best Georgian players would end up fucking going to Dynamo Tbilisi. And all the different Soviet republics, all of them kind of developed different styles of football like Georgian players were always considered to be really technically good players not necessarily physically that great or whatever but technically they were always brilliant we can't I think you always can be seen that you always like players like like Ken Cladzi that would remember like from Man City and whatever technically fucking brilliant fucking football players and it was like but that's because they were Georgia and that was that was the culture of Georgia like Ukraine had a really sort of strong football and culture. All the best players were there went to Dynamo Kiev. It was mere, it was mere split in Russia. 
because you had the big sort of Moscow sides and there was never like always a completely dominant one. Mm-hmm. Like you had Dynamo Moscow and sort of stuff like that. But I so that was that was the way that the Soviet Union always used to they always used to develop their teams like that. And it meant that the players were always really familiar with each other. Like looking at the Scotland team in that game, I think there was I, I've no got the te- I've no got it written down, but I think Scotland didn't have two players for the same side in that set in that game. I think every player was very different. If I'm if right, I'd, I'm sh- I, I should have written it down, but I think I checked that. The actual game itself, Scotland were the better side. Like Scotland were really comfortably the better side. It was like deserved to be one up, and it was after Russia equalised. Scotland had a stonewall penalty on John Walker tonight. It was absolutely fucking stonewall, and it's you just can't understand how the referee didn't get. You just cannot understand how the referee didn't get. It's not to say we would have scored because it is still Scotland in a World Cup, so it's fucking far from certain they're going to have scored the penalty, but they should have had a penalty. The first, the first equaliser, like the, the equaliser for Soviet Union, it was it was unlucky. It's like it's a really good block in the box. It just breaks. It just breaks there, and it just puts it in. And it's like it's an easy goal. He kicks it into the ground, bounces over rough. It's an unlucky goal. The second one is absolutely fucking horrendous. And people always go, "Oh, it's Miller and Hansen." Is the fucking Miller and Hansen? It's fucking Hansen. Mm-hmm. It's Hansen. It's a fucking bad clearance. They start. He fucking puts the ball up in the air, chases back trying to recover his mistake. The mistake's already covered by William Miller. It's completely covered by William Muller. The ball's gone into fucking Rose Ed. You've still got fucking like seven or eight minutes to turn and they get the goal that puts you through. And fucking Hansen, for just no reason whatsoever, just fucking turns around and runs in there. It's like, how can you not see that there's a fucking player covered in there? It's like, you can get back and actually cover the player in case he makes a cut at it. But he's got this covered. He's miles in front of the, he's miles in front of the Soviet player. It's like, there's absolutely no danger that he's getting to it. But fucking Hansen, it's, it's no Muller than Hansen. It's just Hansen. It's purely just Hansen and that goal. Uh, I went to my bed. <laughs> like I specifically remember, I went to my bed. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise the goals were so close together, but I managed to get to my bed and I was lying in there in a complete and utter fucking huff mm-hmm. at the fact that we were going out the World Cup. And obviously it must have been two minutes later because that's when Sunit scored. Right. And I got my lap. Scotland have scored, do you maybe want to watch the last five minutes? And I was like, oh, I okay. Flat back out the cupboard through back to the living room, watch the rest of the game, and it was like, aye. And I loved that impression of your mother as up. if she was like fucking Miss Ellie through Dallas or something. I would imagine <laughs> she probably come on, get back up, you fucking idiot, you're fucking scored. <laughs> um, but one thing, I, mean, I, I remember that feeling. I remember it of when uh, Shingelia scored the same goal, was like, just turn the telly off, you know, and then Sooner scoring. And I didn't realise, you talked about between the two goals, Kim, I didn't realise until recently, I didn't realise there was still four minutes to go when Sunas scored, because I had it in my mind that that was like the last kick of the ball. Mm. The other standout for that game, I remember, is that, that Joe Jordan scoring, but he made his third World Cup in a row he scored for Scotland, which is fucking pretty mm. impressive, like, you know? Very. Uh, I think it's more that it goes back to that thing, like, as you say, 3 up in Houston against New Zealand, and they two goals are the ones that ended up... Aye. Well, the tournament. If, if, if you just do your job properly, mm-hmm. Ken, what? See, see, see with that. I, I, I get, I get why we can say that and whatever. But the Soviets, they only beat, they only beat New Zealand by three goals as well. They only beat them by three goals. The difference, the difference was us getting scalped by Brazil. 
it was getting scalped with Brazil, which actually fucking made the difference. It was it would have been the same goal difference otherwise. Okay, it was like, ah, you can turn around to look at the New Zealand game, but getting absolutely scudded with Brazil was actually what made the difference in that as well. Uh, one one of the other ones I would say as well is Jock's Dean, legendary manager or whatever. Brown on Allen Brazil, who is fucking horrendous fifteen minutes in that game. It is like that. I, I swear. Watch that. I watched it with I watched it with Russian commentary because that appears to be the only thing that had fucking like sort of 90 minutes here. And Alan Brazil comes on in that game and I swear he doesn't find a Scotland player. He must touch the ball about fucking 10 times and every single time he gives the ball away, he's an absolute fucking dumpling. Wait a minute. You can't, how can you blame Joe Steen for that? He, Wait, he brought him on. Oh, fuck. Right, so Alan go on and fucking pass the ball to the opposition. He was a top player at the fucking time. I mean, whatever anybody thinks about Alan Brazil, and listen, I was never his greatest fan. Alan Brazil played for Ipswich, Tottenham, Man United. You know, fucking. And it's funny, when I was looking up, I did not know this, right? I didn't, this has got absolutely nothing to do with Alan Brazil. Did any, were any of you two aware that Garth Crooks played for Man United? No. Did they, uh, he went on loan to them for a, for a period in the, in the mid 80s. Never ever knew that. Okay, so Scotland find a way yet again to get knocked out And we have this bizarre second group stage Which quite frankly, most of the games are boring as fuck There's no two ways <laughs> Everybody was scared to get beat And all this kind of stuff And a lot of draws and things So rather than troll you through that As if we were trolling back into Hosey's fucking uh, relationship life Instead, we will pick you and deep dive on certain teams. And the first one we're going to do, to add on to his knowledge, is Paul O'Neill talking about Brazil, both in the tournament and particularly against Italy, when a certain Paolo Rossi played. Paul? Yeah. I I I think, um, looking back, I was doing a bit of reading and stuff for this, and like, I think... When you look at Brazil 82, you've got to kind of see where they came from for the last couple of tournaments yeah. before it. Because the, the 70 team were absolutely revered. Obviously, they won the World Cup. And the, the, the style they won it was absolutely brilliant. <clears throat> but when it came to the 74 World Cup, the drop-off in quality was absolutely unbelievable. And not just the drop-off in quality, it was the way the way they played. They completely changed their, their, their style. Because I think going back to '66, they were like worried about being seen as a bit naive on European soil. Because mm-hmm. I think they thought they could go and impress their game on everybody. And uh, they, so they basically became like a bit of a, a dirty team, and it, it was not a good thing to watch. And the Brazilian public really didn't like it either. '78, mm-hmm. they tried to change it a wee bit, and they, uh, they were still quite pragmatic. But they, there was a big improvement in terms of style for '74. But while they were attacking, they still always played a bit with a handbrake on. Like they weren't quite the same free flow in Brazil that everybody thought. But well, yeah, associate with like Brazilian Do you football. Remember actually, Paul in '78. I know. I mean, I've not really got up in back. Not, but I think it was Nelinho scored a goal with the outside of the fit for Brazil in mm-hmm. the tournament, which was just had to be seen to be believed. Like you know. Ah, it was it was unbelievable. The cracker. I remember that one. Um, but I I do think as well there was still this kind of sort of blend of styles that never really worked for Brazil at all. And during, the, during that tournament, seven eight, there were actually effigies being burnt to the manager in, in Buenos Aires. <laughs> so, like, so there was a real need after that day two tournaments, where the style was horrible, to go back to a completely uh, new style, much more familiar with like how the Brazilians were 
it used to play in. I think in 70 as well, like the, the coaches were arguing with each other. There was a big thing broke down about whether who was actually picking the team, whether it was the manager. The big belief was the manager basically had been ousted. <laughs> he was there and the, sitting on the bench only and other people were picking the team for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so like the, when they came to uh, preparing for 82, they gave it to Sant- uh, Telly Santana. Mm-hmm. And uh, initially, he changed the style that much that it, it didn't really click and the, the fans weren't really behind it. But eventually it did sort of, sort of gather momentum and they, they, they basically waltzed through their, their qualifying group. And by the time like, they were setting off for the World Cup, the Brazilian public loved them. But obviously not a lot of people were talking about that mystique and no seeing mm-hmm. these teams every so often. So a lot of people in Europe never really knew who who they were, right, their players so were. They only had two players that were playing outside Brazil. They did, aye. Um, so it was, aye, it was 20, a 22-man squad and only two two were uh, playing in Europe and that was Falcao, who was at Roma, and Dursi, who was at uh, Atletico. Mm-hmm. But even then, the ones playing outside Falcao, when he moved to Europe, it massively impacted what he'd done with Brazil. They basically never picked him between 79 and 82. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the last players to actually be picked for the 82 squad as well and only played a couple of the, the warm-ups with him. But like, Santana had thought that his experience in Europe was, was massive, I think, considering how many of them came from Brazil. But I, I think as well that, that playing with that, bringing in that kind of squad over, it added to the mystique that you didn't know what you were going to get. Mm. Obviously, in Brazil, they were excited I think the Europeans were still wondering if you're going to get that kind of Brazil with edge taken off a bit that you got in '74 and '78. But I think the first game completely dispelled that against against the Soviets. Mm. They, they came into it, and I've only gone back to this game because of the style of football. They were, they were notoriously slow starters mm-hmm. in, in the, the tournaments, but like, and even though they went behind, they came back and won it with two like unbelievable goals. Like the football was incredible. Um, like Socrates picked his up and then skipped past the charge and smashed in the top corner for like 25 yards. And then Eder's one, I don't if you remember it, is he basically ran onto it, flicked it up and then volleyed it in for about, about 20 yards as well. And then basically, it was basically them saying, right, we're here and we're playing this style of football. We're going to play to win and it's not going to be anything like you, you've seen previously. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how they, they went on through the tournament, obviously against Scotland and whatever. And if, when you look back at their team, like the amount of players you still recognise, like Zico, Socrates, Falcao, Serezzo, Eder Junior was basically a, a left back who played centre forward for him. The the, the, the license he had, mm. and they were basically the new manager Santana. He basically just trusted them, encouraged them to play their own their own way. Which um, then they wanted like if you score three, we'll score four. That was their attitude. And uh, they only had one kind of player that didn't really fit. And I remember Alan Hansen slagging the boy, Serginho, basically called him a big lump that couldn't run, that didn't, didn't belong in that team at all. And I'm not quite sure why he was involved in when you consider their style. But um, but I think as well, when you look at I think the 82 Brazil team were probably arguably the best team not, not to have ever won a World Cup. Because when you consider as well, they didn't, they didn't only know win it. They never even made the semis because they got beat off Italy, which is the game going to come on to it's pretty incredible when you think about it because they're still spoken about 40 years later as this wonderful team and they got knocked out relatively early doors. Yeah. And I, I think as well, though, like, they get talked about in this attacking sense like, and they were a bit of ropey at the back, but they could defend. If you remember the Argentina game, it was basically a really solid overall performance. Like, Argentina obviously weren't as good as they were at the previous World Cup, but they were still the defendable champions. Still had Maradona and... and and Brazil basically pressed them and harried them over the park and defended higher up. So they just played a different, a, a bit of a different style. But I, th- I honestly think they were 
an incredible team, but it was their own sort of like body mindedness that seen them lose, uh, get knocked out. Because a draw against Italy, going into the Italy game, a draw would have been enough to see them through. But they, they just kept pushing and it, it left them alone. So, like, obviously, Rossi scored early doors, but kind of set the tempo for the game. And then Brazil equalised quite quickly after it. But just the, the style in that game as well, like, watch that game back in the highlights, and you guys will probably jump in on it as well. Is there were, it was just, it was, a, it was naive almost for Brazil to just keep attacking at that point. Mm-hmm. But. That was their, their philosophy. We're not going to back down. We're going to we're going to win games by scoring goals. And like the uh, when Falcao equalised, I think it was twenty minutes to go. So they only really had twenty minutes to hang on and, and try and try and see the game out. But they were trying to get a third when they didn't need it. Like if they if they'd drawn that game, they were going through to the next round. Um, I think the style of the Italians was annoying the players the players as well because they were so defensive and. Weren't they really trying to come out? And Zico called it, was it, the day football died after the game. Mm. But it's just, it was just a different style, wasn't it? Like, it was a clash of two, two styles. And Rossi was uh, obviously the, the game he came to life. And he was incredible. I don't, I don't know if you remember that game yourself. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, um, I remember the goal Socrates scored. And it was just so effortless at the way he just stroked the ball into the net as if it was, it was anything. Um I do think that the kind of style of the tournament probably um, hampered Brazil in the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, they didn't get a time to express. Because I do remember the game against Russia. I think Russia scored a phenomenal goal that day, I know. Um, and, and then, of course, Zico against uh, New Zealand was, was just incredible. Um, and I think as well, just going back to, I know, you get a lot of people, when people, I think, maybe just beyond our generation start talking about football for when they were growing up, they always remember the 1970 World Cup first, because it was on the colour, and obviously the great Brazil team, and Pele, and all that kind of thing. But with us, it was kind of like watching, looking at these strips, because the strips are really weird, in a sense, the colours didn't really go, you know, obviously they're leaning towards Brazil, clearly, but... You know, we're having the blue shorts with the white socks with the yellow and the sort of green tint and all that kind of thing. And uh, I distinctly remember kind of looking at Ider and Zico and hardly being able to tell them apart because they had similar hairstyles, similar kind of um, um, body structures and all the rest of it and, and just were absolutely brilliant. Um, but obviously, I mean, uh, Jose, you mentioned Socrates. I mean, what were your thoughts on him? I mean, so- Socrates, like, in that tournament, he was absolutely brilliant. And th- this game, if Brazil had just kept on getting the ball to Socrates rather than fucking, they kept they kept on trying to force it. I've, I've watched the full game. And it's funny it's funny how your memory plays tricks on you. It's exactly what you were saying earlier on. Mm. Where it's like, oh, I, I watched this game and then it's like it's completely not like I remember. Italy aren't that defensive in this game. It's like they're solid. Like, they're solid. They've got loads of players behind the ball. But... They're playing with two wingers. They're playing with two wingers, a striker, and the two wingers, both of them fucking stayed up the park. Basically, the full game, every time, like Brazil, Brazil's fullbacks were, were pushing forward continuously. Italy were like that. Leave the, leave the wingers up. It's like we've got fucking seven other players. They'll be able to deal with this defensively. We'll leave the three players up, and both wingers both basically fucking hugged the touchline. So every time, every time that Brazil's fullbacks were going forward, which was the whole game, you're totally right. It was like they just kept on pushing and pushing and pushing. It was like, but Italy every time, every time they won the ball back and they won the ball back a fucking awful lot in that game. 
it was like they were turning around, they were breaking really quick, and they were just turning around, feeding wingers, and Italy won that defensive in that game. Gentile absolutely battered fuck out his eco. Like, Brazil sure had a penalty. Brazil sure had a penalty. It's like Gentile fucking like, so he grabs, he grabs Zico. Like, Zico's running out of the box. Mm-hmm. And Gentile just fucking grabs his shirt and he just keeps a huddle. And it's like, you can't see it at first, but then as soon as, as, soon as you see Zico complaining to the referee, he's turned around and pointed at his shot, which has a massive hole in it where Gentile's like fucking basically pulled him back. Uh, but I, I didn't think Italy were that defensive in this game. It's like, but my memory at the time was that Italy are defensive as fuck, and I think it's a stereotype. I think that was a stereotype, certainly for that game. I think it was the Sterling football as well, though. As you said, though, they were dirty, like they were, they were leaving the boot in. They were, they knew how to play the game, and it was really beating the Brazilians. Like, they pressed them dead high. I agree with that. Wasn't they always like just sitting back? Second goal came for pressing them high because Sorezzo made a RC the pass, and Rossi punished them. That's something in that tournament, which watching it back. Plain square was across the defence. That wasn't the fucking really not the done thing at that time. It was like there's so many fucking times that it happened. Like Italy they had three or four times in that game as well. They turn and play a square ball and it's it's not like a wee square ball to like somebody fucking ten, fifteen yards away. It's trying to fucking whip the fucking ball fucking right across the fucking face of the entire defence. And it feels like it's a fraction wrong, wrong position or winning it all the time. Right. <laughs> it is. It's just like it's no, it's no safety for football for either of the sides. It's like we need to switch play because there's more space on that side. Right. It's like I think it was safety for football. It was like I'll tell you what, it's an absolutely fucking brilliant game of football. It was like I watched the entire ninety minutes. And it was like Ken what this is the actual at all. This is a fantastic game. And one of the best, one of the best all time World Cup games by an absolute mile. Hundred percent. Yeah, Paul obviously was Brazil Argentina. Um, can you remind mm-hmm. folk what happened in that game? Uh, the Brazil beat them three one in the group stage. Something I've wanted to mention real quickly, so I forgot that game is um, the, the the second group stages were so, were so like st- stacked against some teams. Some of the groups were like full of quality in terms of the teams in, involved in them, and some of them were absolutely dreadful. Like France's group had Austria and Northern Ireland, and they were rubbing their hands. Whereas the group uh, the group Brazil were in were Italy and Argentina. And England's group was West Germany and Spain, which is really difficult. Well, we worked but, on uh, that until you just steamrolled in with all that fucking stuff. I had nothing to do with Brazil, Argentina whatsoever. Like, but, <laughs> but were you basically slavering there because you didn't know anything about Brazil, Argentina? Or? No, it was, it was 3 1. It was a complete, completely dominant performance for Brazil. I think Argentina never scored till right near the end. But as I say, like, I think that was Brazil's most complete performance of the tournament. It was a. It was, Argentina's goal in that game, like Passarella, like free kick, it's an absolutely fucking brilliant free kick, by the way. It is, people should watch it. It's like he just absolutely batters it in the top corner. And it's like it's been miles out. It's just one of these free kicks with loads of power. Consolation goal, right? It's like 88 minutes or something. Uh, but aye, really, really good goal. But Brazil were good in that game as well. Nothing else, Paul. <laughs> I, no. I keep trying to probe you and you're still only getting it. <laughs> I've obviously missed something that you want to talk about. Fair enough. Right, so, um, as you say, the group stages, which Paul just went completely berserk about for some strange reason. Um, No idea why, and he's obviously never looked at why. That was the performance of the teams within the groups. So it wasn't wasn't like the faulty FIFA or anything. Um, But aye, so there was other... I mean, Spain... 
West Germany and England, um, which was really, I mean, England drew two games 0-0 um, against West Germany. Uh, and it has to be said, like, um, and I'll come on to it later, but the England, it's a wee bit of a story there, but we'll come on to that in the West Germany spot. But the Spain-England uh, game is really uh, memorable for two reasons. First of all, they brought on uh, Trevor Brooker and Kevin Keegan for the last 15 minutes of the game. And they had to win it against Spain. And uh, Brooken broke free, crossed it over to Keegan, open goal, and he managed to put it past the post. But we, all you had to do was nod the ball in where he done, instead he tried to glance it and look good. And I think the perm went against them, quite frankly. Uh, and the other one was, of course, the Spanish police and fans taking dire retribution on the England fans for the invasion of uh, Las Islas Malvinas, to which uh, there are footage of England fans at a bar giving it the old Royal Britannia and all that and then the Spanish mob come and run shouting Argentina and batter and fuck with them <laughs> <laughs> so when the, the old uh, the polis appear um, they just leather into the English as well so and it's funny because uh, if you read any football hooligan books or anything like that the, the English clearly are not really liked by the Spanish or the Italian polis and therefore they trust them you know, yeah, which is quite good. But that led us on to, of course, the... So all this meant that its four semi-finalists were Italy, Poland, who were in their second semi-final in, uh, since 1974, uh, West Germany and France. Italy would advance against Poland and would have West Germany against France. Uh, Poland, um, you know, not really talked about, but they had a really decent side. And it was quite interesting because... The Polish thing at the time was, you know, they were still kind of behind the Iron Curtain, but, you know, solidarity and all that kind of thing was was kind of rife and um, had a really decent football team, mixed the fact that nobody ever talks about them. Ended up finishing third in 82 and third in 1974 as well. Um, but we move on. Graziani's pulled away towards the penalty spot. Coming up on this side, Antonio Cabrini from left back. Chipping it in, and a possibility for... Oh, Rossi! Rossi's got it! Paolo Rossi has done it! 1-0 to Italy, after only five minutes. Who finds Leandro? Serrazzo. Oh, Rossi! Rossi's in again, 2-1, Paolo Rossi, terrible mistake by Serrazzo, and Italy are in front for the second time, Rossi didn't need to be asked twice, two goals in 24 minutes, Italy lead 2-1. Bagomi is up there, shot by Tardelli, and it's been turned in! Paolo Rossi was there again! Unbelievable! It's 3-2 to Italy! Would you believe it? The ball turned in once more. The header back in by Bagomi, the shot by Tardelli. And Paolo Rossi struck with his right foot and has completed a hat-trick one of the most remarkable 
possibly in the World Cup. And we get to the semi-finals. Whoa. So, obviously we mentioned who was in the semi-finals and West Germany, France became one of the most talked about and best games ever and all that kind of thing. But I'm going to deep dive into West Germany because I think, first of all, there is a perception about Germany, which, which especially people in Scotland and England have been brainwashed into, oh, the Germans, they just went on penalties and all that kind of thing. And know that that really matters because they've never beat Scotland ever on penalties. So what difference does that make to fucking us? Um, but there's some really interesting things about West Germany in terms of football. I mean, first of all, um, West Germany for a long time didn't play any players for the national team that played outside West Germany, which meant that great West German players like Bert Troutman at Man City, for example, never got a cap for West Germany because they were playing at Man City. Um, and this was kind of, um, you know, seemed to hold them back in terms of progressing in international football, given that, you know, they had quite a uh, obstacle to overcome after 1945. Um, but incredibly, they actually managed to win the World Cup in 1954, which is still uh, the most revered German team of all time. Um, they beat Hungary 3-2 uh, in the final, which is called so called the Miracle of Bern, obviously, in Switzerland. Um, and this was hung when Hungary were hungry, you know, the, the great Hungarian side. We'd actually managed to beat West Germany in the group stage 8-3 um, that year, which made it all the more incredible that actually Germany beat them 3-2 in the final in the Wankdorf Stadium, which many German stadiums were then named after because of uh, that result. Um, Hungary were also 31 games unbeaten going into that uh, World Cup final, so nobody gave West Germany a chance in hell. Um, and were also the Olympic champions so um, you can't stress how good they were and they'd obviously given England that lesson at Wembley you know so um, in fact the West German performance was so good that day that the, the Hungarians said that they must be doping the players because there's only, that's the only way they could be and there was rigorous testing and investigation done and there was no doping whatsoever done uh, despite there being huge allegations at the time um, and they tested all the German players and every single one of them was drug free basically um, the thing about that which is even more remarkable is that Germany didn't have a professional league at that time it was leagues that were split up into regions semi-professional amateur and all that kind of thing and the Bundesliga didn't actually start until 62-63 and that was very much a case of, you know and we or our old pals uh, we'll, we'll get them in and we'll no bother with certain other teams for example 1860 Munich were invited in, Nazi collaborators. But Bayern Munich, friends of the Jewish people, weren't they? Um, which was kind of so. I think it is quite a remarkable thing to win a World Cup when you don't even have a professional league. <laughs> um, but aye, so and obviously the start of the Bundesliga um, started to roll on, and of course um, they did manage to obviously go to the final in 1966. Um, and then their kind of uh, tour de grace was, was obviously in 74 we, when they won it in Germany and, and Franz Beckenbauer and all that kind of thing. And that's when German football, of course, began to rise up itself in terms of Bayern Munich won the European Cup three years in a row. Um, and then later on, obviously, you know, just after 82, Hamburg won the European Cup against Juventus, which was a massive fucking um, upset. You know, Felix McGaff scored the goal. 
you've got to remember as well that gone in a 1982, the Germans were European champions, European champions after winning uh, the European Championship in Italy. Um, in terms of their squad going into 1982, there was four for Cologne, four from Hamburg, and three for Bayern Munich. Um, there was only two players outside Germany. One was uh, Hansi Müller, who was playing for Inter Milan, and the other was, of course, Uli Stielicker, who was playing for Real Madrid at the time, who a lot of people at the time thought bore a remarkable resemblance to one boy called, uh, I don't know, let me just check the name here, Adolf Hitler. So I don't know if that's what we mean, but um, the manager at the time was a guy called Jörg Derwall. Uh, he was assistant manager for 70 to 78 in the golden period of German football and then manager for 78 to 84. Of course, Germany had also lost the European Championships in 76. Uh, do you remember what who scored the winning goal, Paul? In 76, no. Yeah, it was a penalty. Penenka. Oh, Penenka, yeah, so, sorry. Uh, you know on the ball today, Paul? Yeah, what, what <laughs> I think that fucking this continual worrying about your hair and beard's really getting to you, like. But <laughs> by the um, by the way, see see just see just on Penenko just very briefly. This is nothing to do with anything. No, it's it's like very quickly though. It's like Czechoslovakia in this tournament uh, had two penalties, and Penenko took them both. Fucking slotted both of them in. Both of them, the keeper stood in the middle of the goals, didn't he die? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Jupp Derwall was um, you know, revered in German football, was a nickname the Chieftain Silver Curl, which is a kind of nickname I'd like to give you, Paul, at some point. It's, uh, uh, had, after this tournament, had went uh, sorry, after the European Championships in 84, went to Galatasaray as manager, and they named their training ground after him, such was the, the high renowned. But in terms of the actual uh, performances, I mean, the first game West Germany lost 2 1 to Algeria. Now this goes back to what you were saying about people just making incredibly stupid passes and mistakes and all that kind of thing. I mean, Algeria's goals defensively were an absolute disgrace, um, you know, for, for Germany. You know, they were kind of like guys just diving all about the place, Keystone Cops kind of thing. Um, Majer had scored the first goal for Algeria, which literally left the commentator speechless, you know. Um, there wasn't much talk about Algeria as a football in force, but there was, of course, a French sort of um, influence on their side, given the previous history and all that kind of thing. And in fact, a certain Mister Zidane was one of the one of the offsprings of the, one of the players. Um, Rummenigge equalised quite quickly for um, West Germany, but then, of course, Bellori managed to score the winner for Algeria, and people just couldn't. I mean, you know, this is a European champions coming in to play fucking Algeria. And this is at the time, even in Britain, you know, we're very much of the empire and dismissive of all these jolly foreigners who try to play their football game and all that kind of thing. Nobody could believe it, you know? Um, but then, of course, so West Germany went into the next game against Chile, was like, basically, you lose, you're out, you know? Uh, yeah. Big pressure, but of course, they, like they always do, um, the West Germany team were fantastic. Rummenigge scored a hat-trick. The goalkeeper for Chile had an absolute fucking nightmare. Um, it was Bruce Grobbler esque in the time of is he match fixing or no? The amount of things that squiggled out his hands and rolled under him and all that kind of thing were incredible. But that put West Germany back on the scene, and of course, Caroline's room and I go on the map, so he's already scored four goals. Now, I said at the start of the programme that Maradona was one of the guys who everybody was looking at, this is going to be their tournament. The other guy that everybody was saying this is going to be was Caroline's room what people didn't realise, and this was something, as I said, you know, 
Rummenigge's biggest disappointments in his career is both in 1982 and 1986 he wasn't fully fit and he never felt that he gave was able to give the performance that he would have liked to have given. In fact, in, 90, in 1986, he actually was really no fit, but the manager just said, you have to go. You know, you have to go and you have to be there. And of course, he ended up scoring the goal in the World Cup final um, in '86. But then, of course, came the infamous game, West Germany won Austria nil. Now, this basically fucked the Algerians, as we know. They needed, they needed a four-goal swing in their favour to go through. Therefore, West Germany won Austria and it was a perfect result for both West Germany and Austria. And there was talk, of course, at the time, big brother and little brother and all that kind of thing, that there was the worst cheating that had ever went on at a World Cup and all that. And, of course, to facilitate that, you need a referee that's well-versed in cheating. So who was the referee that day? It was Bob Valentine of Dundee. <laughs> so uh, that was that. And, uh, you know, much to the Algerian chagrin, the West Germans and the Austrians went through. Go to this um, horrific second group stage thing. Uh, first game was against England, and it has to say that um, England were absolutely brilliant in the game. Schumacher pulled off an amazing performance for West Germany. Um, England were firing shots left, right, and centre at him, and uh, he was pulling off all the stops. At that time, you know Harold Schumacher or Tony, to his friend, uh, you know he was the top, arguably the top goalkeeper in the world. You know, um, and he was a right. I mean, he reminds me, he holds you a little, he's a right kind of vindictive, unempathetic type of you know, um, as we'll see later on. But after all that English pressure, last minute, Caroline Drummond actually hit the bar with an absolute screamer, which I'm watching it thinking, imagine watching this in the boozer, like, you know, I thought it would be fucking amazing, like, Ken. Um, and then, of course, so Germany had to go to, to beat Spain, and that they did. Pierre Litbarski, who was an emerging force, Scored the first goal, great goal, had a great game, great tournament he had in fact, and, and Fisher scored the same goal. And West Germany were through. And we come on, of course, to the semi-final. Now, people have to understand that this is 1982, right? It isn't that long ago that Germany had invaded France and had occupied France. So there wasn't a lot of fucking sort of um, great relations between the two countries or the two sets of players for that matter. Uh, in fact, Platini had kind of apparently made it his goal. I'm going to fucking knock these bastards out and all that kind of thing, uh, even if I have to do it single-handedly. But um, so the game itself came, and Litbarski scored for Germany again. Litbarski is now starting to emerge, and Rummenigge um, is again. You can tell he's no fit. You know, Rummenigge. Rummenigge um, is a player who you know uh, he, he played for Bayern Munich. He scored a lot of goals for Bayern Munich and he um, played then for Inter Milan and then he played for Servette. And it's really difficult to describe what kind of centre-forward Rummenigge was because he just was able to score goals um, but he was also able to just unsettle defences which he wasn't the biggest guy in the world. He wasn't like some big fucking Andy Carroll, Duncan Ferguson type. But he, but he could get in about people. What I think separates... Um, Rummenigge for other players is and this very much um, ties into the West German stereotype of his mentality was unbelievable like this guy you know the focus and the determination just to keep doing it and keep doing it, never be beaten was exactly what he was and this was never made it evident than in this game because of course France ended up being 3-1 up in extra time 
And you think to yourself, now, if you're a fan and your team's losing 3-1 in extra time in any game, you didn't think you're going to come back. You know, you know, you didn't think that fucking, oh, we're going to come back and still win this game. Because I always feel as when you're getting beaten in extra time, it's as if the fucking minutes just go, like, seconds, you know. But, um, come back they did. And uh, Rummenigge, um was in amongst it all as well. But, of course, this was all overshadowed by the incident that, even when we talk about the day, you've seen it yourself, Paul, on social media, people didn't even realise that the Schumacher-Patrick-Battiston incident did not even result in a foul stroke penalty. Never mind yeah. the or sending off or criminal charges or hung in the centre circle, you know, by French people. Um, and going back to that vindictive Steve Schumacher, if you see the incident after it's happened in Battiston, who's clearly in massive distress, Schumacher's standing like, for fuck's sake, hurry up. You know, mm-hmm. he does not it's- care. Can you imagine that happened in in the modern day, like with social media and stuff? The guy would never be able to leave his house again. Like, it, it was honestly, I watched it back and see that it's like one of the ones. The more you watch it, the worse it gets. Mm-hmm. There's like different angles and the, the impact. I think apparently he's, he offered to pay for his teeth or something. If, to, to well, fix his teeth. If. There's a lot of rumours in in in, in the end on that. Go and we got some into others when we thought somebody's wrote in into Jose. I don't know if you've seen it and said. I, uh, Schumacher ended up being uh, Batstone's best man at his wedding. No, he never. <laughs> he, he never. Schumacher, uh, for a long time, didn't think he had anything to apologise for. You know? And he's just like, what, what the fuck do you want from me, kind of thing? You know? Away, um, I, I, I clattered the forward. That's what I was supposed to do. Away and fuck yourself was basically well, his attitude. That, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, see, this is again why I think West Germany, then Germany, are the most successful European nation is because of their vault win. They didn't have a romantic side of, oh, Platini's brilliant, let's just win him, stroll him at the World Cup and all that kind of thing. It's like, no, we're here to win this fucking football match. And we didn't give a fuck if it was going to break your hearts. You know? I mean, you look at any kind of conversation about Euro 96, particularly when it's among English people, all they talk about is coming home. They never mention the fact that when Müller scores a winning penalty, that's what the Germany fans sung. You know, they were like, just get it right fucking up, you. Um, and I have to say that my experience, and I'll happily um, move on to yours as well, My, I think Germans are a lot like Scottish people, right? In the sense that they like their beer, they like their football, they're friendly people and all that. We, as a nation, had drummed into us that they were arrogant and the whole towels on the fucking deck chair thing and you know, everything, nothing was, you know, and Harry Enfield, and it wouldn't have happened under Hitler, and all this kind of thing. A lot of bollocks, really, you know? And it's kind I, of... See, see, I, as, see, see, my one, my general experience of Scottish people is, we fucking love the German football team. Have you seen how many doings they've gave to England? It's like, I didn't think Scottish people generally dislike the German team at all. It is. It was like even when Christian Daly was fucking like running about a tunnel, calling them a shouty cheating cunts. It was like that. It was like, oh come on, Christian, they've done a lot of good things for us here. Away and what, fuck yourself. What I also <laughs> was brilliant about that was the fact that he'd done that off camera and would never have got caught had Betty Boats not gone. Christian, shut up. Danny Grasso, Betty. The German Paul, you mentioned it's like the coolness, you know, the Adidas. I love Adidas and the Adidas mm. boots and all the strips all look fucking phenomenal. Um, they had guys obviously in like for example in this squad Paul Breitner I mean where do you, you could do a whole podcast on Paul Breitner you know even just talking about his fucking hair and his fucking beard for a start but the German mentality was you know we're here to win it's as simple as that 
And the tournament for them, clearly they get to the final and they're going to play Italy. Um, the tournament for them is obviously something that they look back on with regret because they feel as though you know we could have really dominated world football with the players that we had. Because as you know, guys like Rumeniga are coming towards the end. Guys like Rudy Voller are coming up, and Voller was essentially Rumeniga's replacement. And you saw the if you take yourself to somewhere like nineteen ninety, for example, you saw the animosity between Germany as they had now become in Holland. You know, again, no lot of love lost there and that kind of thing. But as you see, for all this kind of you know, you see, in eighty two, people in Scotland, and England have been programmed to hate the Germans. Simple as that. But, in another way, those same people would also tell you that Britain won the Second World War. And that's, you know, again, which we found out to be absolute rubbish as well. So, it kind of, your Germany from this, you know, clearly the country's been devastated. And let's not all pretend that everybody in Germany was a Nazi. Some people always want to try and do. They managed to build the nation, put a World Cup winning side on the park by 1954, professional league by the 60s, dominate European football by the 70s and 80s and then become the dominant European um, nation which probably I would suggest that if there was a nation against nation World Cup playoff it would be Germany against Brazil although maybe we've done that in 2014 and fucked Brazil 7-1, I don't know <laughs> but that's that's where we were in Germany and this game as I say you know, the Batistone incident is something that um, will remain long, long in the memory of anybody who saw it. Blackney taking over and playing the great ball for Batistone. That was a magnificent ball from Blackney. And Batistone, so unlucky. Just wonder what the uh, referee thought about the challenge from Schumacher on Batistone. Certainly looked a wild jump. Back and he comes to have a word with Lopez to see whether he's ready to come on without really having uh, limbered up, which he is. And we're going to restart with a goal kick. And we move on to the final. And the final is between, of course, West Germany and Italy. Some would say, close cousins depending on your views on fascism. What I'll say to intro Alan Hosey, who's going to dispel all the beliefs he's a lazy bastard and has actually done some research, is the fact that I think this game against France, as good as it was for West Germany, exhausted them for the final. But I'll open that platform and tell Hosey to jump aboard and he can enlighten us. Right, uh, so, uh, the final. Uh, give me a second. So, I'm not at the goal, I'm going to go through the goals. Uh, first one, it's really, really clever for Italy. Like, I think, I think we've got the stereotype about Italian football. It's like that. They're sneaky, they're fucking like, so they'll turn around, they'll do anything, and win. It's just like, win it off in course mentality. Not that dissimilar for West Germany, to be fair. Mm-hmm. But they turn around, they get a free kick, and they get a free kick in the middle of the pitch and everybody's fucking crowded around the ball and they just turn around and it's like no take this quick there's space out wide fucking turn around put it in just flick it in and Rossi finds a gap because that's what he does ever since the Brazil game in this tournament 
I'm going to go into Rossi a wee bit, yeah. but just in terms of that goal, it's just such, it's just such an Italian goal. It's like it's smart. It's really, really smart. It's quick thinking. It's quick moving, and there's a lot of fucking skill and ability in it, which I think is kind of, kind of epitomises Italian football, to be honest. So they turn around and do that. The next goal. This has gone back to Italian football being really defensive. Mm-hmm. Italy's second goal is absolutely fucking brilliant. And it's fair player that I didn't care that much about. It was like, I, I was roughly aware of him. Uh, but I've kind, I kind of looked at him, I started looking at his care and I'm like, Jesus fuck, how is this not the most one, a player that I absolutely know to death? And it's Sharia, like who was the sort of sweeper libero for Juventus and he played there for a long time and that goal he breaks up he breaks up play edge of the box edge of his own box turns around just nice interception and he just bursts forward he bursts forward with the ball gets to the halfway line plays it fucking like out wide nice way pass just keeps on continuing his run ends up on the right wing plays a 1-2 in the box and turns around does a step over and then turns around lays it back to Tardelli mm-hmm. and Tardelli takes a wee touch inside and just leathers it in and that's the way I, I think that's iconic image right. of the World Cup. And can I just say, Tardelli, actually, the World Cup is one. That celebration that Tardelli does is exactly how I imagine you running towards the pubs when they open again. <laughs> I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm, I might be marginally swore, but yes, it will be exactly yeah, that. I agree. Thing. I mean, that, the, that image is absolutely, you know, we, we'll talk about this at the end and in, in, in kind of nostalgia like football terms, but. It just looks like th- how much does it mean to him to have scored that goal? Aye, and it is, and it's, and it's an absolutely incredible image. And it's like, and I think that image is well. You turn around and it's like we've won the World Cup. Aye. it's the first, it's the first World Cup Italy have won since nineteen thirty eight. They won two fucking World Cups Aye. under Mussolini, and that, it's like that's a that's the first World Cup they've won. It's the first international tournament they've won since nineteen sixty eight, where they won the European Aye. Championships, and they won it. Like AC Milan won the European Cup in 1969 Italy hadn't won an there hadn't been an Italian side that had won an international mm-hmm. tournament in 13 years at that point I was going we to all, I think, that, um, I think, just to yeah. say that, that Italy and Germany were both going for their uh, third World Cup in that game aye basically this is as much in Brazil this is as much in Brazil as entirely the way that mm-hmm. it was looked at you know? uh, I. I think we always think of Italy as being sort of like football royalty. It's like that. They're always going to be one of the best sides in the world. That's a fucking lean spell for Italy. Like Italian football had sort of dominated in the 60s in terms of, in terms of club football and stuff like well, that. I mean, Inter Milan obviously were a massively dominant team in the in the 60s. Uh, I'm not sure who beat them in the final, but the 69 AC Milan team thankfully won at Celtic Park to go into that you know final. But it's, it's, it's kind of like the shift... From Latin teams in Europe, the Madrids, the Benficas, Barcelona, is now moving to Northern Europe mm-hmm. through um, clearly, obviously, Celtic, Man United, and then obviously um, Ajax and, and people like that. So you're right, yeah, it's a good point to bring up. And, and, and it was like I thought, I thought it hadn't, it hadn't really occurred to me that there had been a, a pretty lean spell for Italian mm-hmm. football. There had been a pretty lean spell for Italian football, uh, but they came in. Sorry, I'll just I'll finish off the final first, and then I'll sort of go back a wee bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third goal, it's like West Germany are chasing the game, and there's just so much space in the box, and it's just like it's a really fucking easy goal for Italy. And again, but 
they're quite clinical with it. They're quite clinical with it. They break it apart. They turn around. They look. They find a bit of space, and it's like it's a really easy goal. West Germany. West Germany score. Well, it's Alexander scores a third goal, right? It was Alexander. Aye. Alexander, who, who the entire British press turned around and thought Ian Rush should automatically be replacing him when he signed for Juventus. <laughs> It was like Altebelli, who has scored a goal in a World Cup final. He should automatically be joked for Ian Rush, who can he, who can he understand living in a foreign country? It means that people speak foreign. But anyway, and, uh, aye. And listen, let's just, not forget just, the great Paul Breitner uh, pulled him back for West Germany. Um, yeah. But as you said, I mean, Paulo Rossi, the second half Italy scored, right? It was the first goal. Yeah, yeah. Paulo yeah. Rossi scored his sixth goal, he won the golden boot, basically. The story of yeah. Rossi previous to this and then going into the World Cup is incredible. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. I've, I've just got to go through a wee bit. So, Rossi, first of all, he's all well with me, is entitled I Made Brazil Cry, which I thought was fucking tremendous, <laughs> tremendously petty. <laughs> and it was like that. Yes, you probably did, you probably did to be a fair pillow. Uh, he started off with Juventus. He started mm-hmm. off with Juventus and he played three games in cup games. He went on loan to Como like after I think it was two or three seasons. He went on loan. He had three games in Serie A, and then he got signed by Vicenza. Mm-hmm. He got signed by Vicenza on it was a loan, and then it was a joint. It was a joint ownership thing. Mm. When he joined them, he turned around and he was a top scorer in Serie B. He started off as a right winger. Mm-hmm. Started off as a right winger, and then it was Vicenza that moved him in the centre. Part Vicenza only a big side by any means, but he was a top scorer in the Serie B. Scored twenty one goals that season. It was like that was the first that was the first full season that he ever played. Mm-hmm. But he had he'd had three knee operations by the time he was eighteen, aye, aye, which is part, which is part which is part of the reason why he'd never really made a breakthrough or anything. Mm-hmm. But he was a fragile, fragile player. Uh, it was joint ownership with Vicenza, and then there's something called the game of the envelopes, which happens in Italian football when there was joint ownership between players. And the two sides of ownership, it's like, who's got to pay the most for them? And the ownership between Juventus and Vicenza, Vicenza massively outbid Juventus. So Juventus got that money, and it was like, there you go. So he's now a Vicenza player. He then became the top scorer Serie A. Like following season, only player ever to have done it. Top scorer in the second division, top scorer in the top division the season after. Scored twenty five goals that season, wow. and nineteen and so the late seventies Italian football. Twenty five goals in a Serie A season is absolutely fucking amazing in terms of goal scoring. Two his goals, and there's so many of his goals which are so similar, and a lot of the goals that he scored in this tournament were exactly like that as well. You turn around, you're like, how the fuck's he in that much space? It's like, and he just turns around and. His movement is incredible. He turns around and he always, it wasn't like the same move all the time, but there was so often he would make a sort of step inside, the defender would follow him and he would turn around and just cut back and he ends up in like fucking acres of space in the box continuously against Italian defences. And it is, it, it, his movement is absolutely incredible. But uh, he ended up getting injured because he got injured a lot. Mm-hmm. He ended up getting injured a lot and the next season for Vicenza, he scored he scored 15 goals in 20-odd games. But the games that he wasn't playing, Vicenza had basically spent so much money on him that they had fuck all to surround him by. And they got relegated. They managed to get relegated, despite the fact that he was still fucking brilliant for them. But he was injured. <coughs> so then, Kendi Fateful one happened after that, where they sent him on to Perugia. Mm-hmm. 
because he needs to keep playing in Serie A. Presumably they were getting some money for this because fucking they spent so much money on him. Uh, and he had a good season with Perugia, except Perugia were involved in what was called the Total Neri scandal. Mm-hmm. So I've got a wee bit on that. So there was a scandal in Italian football, which is always amazing. Always difficult to believe that there was a scandal in Italian football. And I think earlier they went, oh, every time we've won the World Cup, it's a scandal. And it's, there's been a scandal which has preceded it. And it's like, I think you need to narrow it down because there's always a fucking scandal in Italian football. It doesn't seem to matter when it is. It's like mm. there's always been one. So this one, it was a betting scandal. And it wasn't like, Rossi has always said that he's innocent. Mm. He's like, I never had anything to do with it. And it's been consistent. It was consistent until he died. It was consistent right through until he died. He was like, I know had anything to do with this. I was wrongly convicted. It was completely fucking unfair. Uh, in the Totonera scandal, it was a gambling scandal, and it was revealed by two shopkeepers in Rome who said that there was all this match fixing going on. Aye. It, it involved seven teams. Milan and Lazio were demoted to Serie B for it. It involved two presidents. The Milan president was banned for life, and it was 21 players who all got between three three months to six-year bans. Paolo Rossi got three years to start where he appealed it and he was like, ah, I'm innocent. And they went, oh, well, if you're innocent, we'll reduce it to two. <laughs> reduce it to two if you're innocent. And he was like that. Well, I think this is fucking still unfair. But he came back just before the World Cup. He'd had, had a good World Cup in 1978. Mm. He, it's like, he scored a couple of goals and he'd like set up a few and he was like, I came in and go, a decent Italian performance. They finished fourth that year. Uh, Can I just ask so, you, Rosie, just um, see how you're talking about how he's come back just before the World Cup and he's obviously been banned for two years of that previously. Do you think that actually helped him in, game, in terms of his injuries and his knees and all that? I was, I was actually just about to say, there's a lot of Italian journalists who go, he'd had that many injuries mm-hmm. that actually having two years of a break probably, probably was the reason, but he was absolutely shy at the start of the World Cup and he'd only played three games. He'd only played three games like before that he scored one goal for Juventus. Juventus had eventually signed him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he'd only played three games for them like, right towards the end because that's when his banner had ended. Uh, so mm-hmm. he came back, he played three games for them, he'd scored one goal and it was a really, really controversial fucking like So it was a really controversial end to the season that year. Again, Italian football. Last game of that season, which is one of the ones that he was back for, it was... Uh, they were playing Catanzo, who is a team that I've literally never heard of, like fairly sort of south of Italy. Juventus needed to win on the last day of the season. Fiorentina were playing at the same time. And gone out in the stadium that day, it was, uh, it was turned around and Paolo Rossi was getting jostled by all the fans who were fucking calling him prison trash and fucking like, you're a cheat, you're a fucking thug, you're this and you're that. It's respect. A couple of months later, they were probably a bit more forgiving him. Uh, aye, it's like you're a crook, you're a crook, and it was like that. So, aye, kind of got attacked outside the stadium. Juventus won that game with a penalty, which apparently was a penalty. Fiorentino, Fiorentino would have went to a playoff if they had got a penalty that in, in the other game that they were playing and were denied what was apparently the most stonewall penalty ever and also had a goal to with five minutes to go. Fiorentino fans fucking hate Juventus and that is one of the fucking reasons for it it's like they absolutely detest them the like this was a completely stolen championship mm-hmm. Juventus were the only side that season who never had a penalty given against them in the whole Serie A so sounds like Scotland but just can, well, I, ask you, can, I, can I ask you just something there Rosie something you, I was really interested in and then Paul jumping as well he talked about how 
hated basically Paolo Rossi was previous to this World Cup. These kind of things happen a lot in football, don't they? Where players, one minute, the whole fucking country hates them. And obviously, David Beckham's an example. He came back for 98 and it was like effigies and ruined the, around the east end of fucking land. Killed him, can't you? Oh, that's fucking shit. And by 2001, he was free kicking them into the World Cup and he was a golden boy and all that kind of thing. It just kind of proves to me that football fans are pretty much fucking idiots, aren't they? And they put themselves in that way, you know? The most hypocritical people in the fucking world are football fans who've had a player do something good or bad for right. them. It's like that. Well, aye, he's, he, might be a, he might be a mass murderer, but did you see the fucking goal that he scored? It's right. like football supporters fucking won for them. Absolutely, yeah. Major tournaments can shape players like that massively. As you say, in 98, Beckham was the hero gone into it, and then he was like the, the, the epic museum. And then you think about like Ronaldo, the way the press went after him after he had the wink after like Rooney got sent off. Mm. It, Big tournaments can absolutely make or break players. It's, it's, it's incredible. I, I just wonder, and it's a discussion for a, another thing, where you, we see it in Scotland, the, the sense of English nationalism that rises when um, England are in a major tournament. And I'm not just talking about it among fans, but pundits, and I, you talked about Ronaldo there, Paul. I just think I remember Shearer basically saying the England player should attack him after the game. You know, and all this kind of like, Jesus, I mean, can you please stop? Um and I feel as though with England, that's kind of stopped a wee bit now. And it wasn't really like that in 2018. There wasn't this kind of fucking, oh, it's fucking killed a cat, you know. It was, a, you know. But with, with this kind of thing with Italy, it just seems to be that, you know, there's there's a, a definite, I mean, you've avoided saying it, but there's obviously anybody listening to what you've just said to Rosie Scott, you're thinking, mafia, right? You know. Ah. You talk about, you know, you get the Diego Maradona documentary and the whole thing's about fucking the, the, the Nepalese mafia, basically. You know, um, when you talked about the, the envelopes, and that's part of the Italian culture, you gain somebody a wee sweetener, shall we say. Um, and it's, you know, it's like an episode of the fucking Sopranos, quite frankly, you know what I mean? But it is incredible, the, the Italian sense of pride. You know, you talked about that final, I forgot to put this in, I'll put it in now. In our local chippy at the time, which was owned by Paolo Crolla, who was a you know an Italian clearly, um, and this is in fucking Pennywell Road in nineteen eighties, which was you know like fucking Beirut, quite frankly. He basically gave away all his stock that night when Italy won the <laughs> World Cup, and I remember it clear as well. And it was at that point I lived in Pennywell Grove, which is where obviously Buffy's are well and all. Now people will understand probably Pennywell Grove is maybe a quarter of a mile from. You know, there to the chippy, but that at that point still fucking was like going to Australia for me, you know, <laughs> because people hung around the shops and would batter you basically for no reason. And um, but the minute they heard it was like free chips, what it was like, you know, very much like we talked about the we talked to Ian Calhoun last week and he talked about his first game being Hibs Chelsea, and I remembered that as that every young thug in Edinburgh was going up to kill Chelsea. You know, and as I say, and everybody was saying, I Hibs are one at fighting, no, Chelsea won at football. Hibs were, and as I said, like, I never seen a Chelsea fucking supporter apart from in the ground, and Hibs won 4 1. And it's amazing how that the, the jungle drums beat because Italy had won that World Cup. I just wonder now, outside of this country, and by this country, I mean the four different countries, uh, would that happen now? That sense of achievement being global or would it just be a shivery wanker jumping on the bandwagon <laughs> it's a fair point <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm waving at you Paul you've got the international experience here 
I think I think there'd be a, a massive sense of pride regardless of the nation, no? Like I I think I it would be jumping on the bandwagon because a lot of the time nobody gives a fuck about international football mm. now because it happens so often and football is so saturated I think people do care less mm-hmm. but you look at the shift and change the attitude towards Scotland because we've qualified for a major tournament mm-hmm. people who literally make comments about how they'd never open their, their uh, curtains to watch Scotland in the Gerdon or whatever all of a sudden buying Panini sticker books in their 40s and stuff you know what I mean because like, <laughs> went nuts I mean Jose just to get back on subject one of the things I was interested in as well was how Strong stroke fancied were really going into this tournament. The, the Italians thought they were they were a pretty decent side. They'd had a good world. They'd had a good World Cup in, in 1978, and they were like, "Nah, there's a there's a reason there's a reasonable bit here." And again, there was quite there was quite a strong spine, and they had a lot of good players. They, exactly, they've always got a lot of good players. So it's like mm. they're always reasonably confident. But this was one of the ones where it, it was completely years of. He's of turnaround, he's of disgrace football because of the fucking like this current latest scandal and it's like there wasn't a great feeling for the there wasn't a great feeling about the national team or a great mm. football in Italy. And it'd been a long time since they'd had any fucking like sort of huge success or anything like that. So it wasn't that positive. But they had turned around and they went, ah, nah, there's making see a team here. And the manager was quite well liked. Like Enzo Berzo mm-hmm. was was quite well liked. He had he never had much of a playing career of Berzot, but uh, he had ended up going to Torino after the Supergut crash, which had basically wiped out their team, which was yeah. the, same, the same point with Joe Baker and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and it's, kind, it's kind of like, he was a replacement there and he was always seen as like a really fucking, he was a, he was a good person and it was like, he'd only had one coaching job and it was, uh, I can't remember the team's name, but it was some team in Tuscany and it was like the mm-hmm. Italian third division. And he'd only managed them for a couple of years. He got them promoted, but then he went to work with Italian FA. So he'd been involved in Italian FA for about 10 years. And then he got given the job in 1975 after they'd been absolutely shy. He's the longest serving manager that I've ever had. He was, like, he was there for 11 years. Uh, but I, they weren't, they weren't well fancied, but they were like they were a decent side. And again, as one, having watched the games again, I'm like, they got quite a bit of unfair criticism in the groups. Mm-hmm. They were the better side three group games. They were really the better side in the three group games. And the last one was, I suppose it's one of these ones where there's conservation of the effort. They were one that up. They were one that up in the mm-hmm. last game, and, and they conceded the late equaliser. And it's like, this has been absolutely shit. Paolo Rossi was bad in the games. Mm-hmm. He was really, really bad. He, he hadn't played. He hadn't played in two years. And it was like, and he was still finding his touch or whatever. But it's funny, you can kind of see him in the games. He's getting better each game. And it's like, it's, so it's gradual. He doesn't get a goal, but he sets up, uh, let, let me see what games. I, and he's getting in positions again. Like Tardelli scores a goal uh, against, it was against Peru. And he goes, and it's like, he's a wee bit sort of wide and runs in on the keeper. And he slots it in, and it's like, it's a good finish or whatever. Paolo Rossi is inside him, and if he fucking plays it inside, it's like Paolo Rossi is again an absolutely fucking acres of space, and he's got an absolute tap-in, like, to score. And that's that's where he's starting to come into it, and he's starting to find all, the, all these gaps amongst defenders. He's such a fucking clever football player. He's, like, really, really good. And what's saying, good. Like, much like um, Paolo Rossi, you just mentioned, their tournament football is about peaking at the right Aye. time. 
And that seems to be what Italy done. When you get into obviously the Argentina game and then particularly the Brazil game, it feels like Italy are getting into their stride by then. It is, and it's like they want. They, I didn't think they were that bad in the groups. I didn't think they were that as bad as they were. They never they won a game. What in the first group stage? They never won a game, though, did they? It was like no, three, they, drew, they drew all three games. Mm. They drew all three games. They drew against Cameroon. Like Roger Miller in that game. Roger Miller in that game, first fucking game in the World Cup for a sub sub Saharan team. Roger Miller is really, really good in that game. You can see that he's a fucking like quality fucking football. Well, player. he was a veteran but, at thirty-two year old. Then was it? Aye, <laughs> and it's like I. But uh, well, Terry Walton, fucking some of that I noticed in it, and it was like in that game, Cameroon, Cameroon can see the goal, and it's a, it's across to the back post, and it's, so it's heated and Graziani scores for Italy, and he does it, and so he, like for the other side, the keepers came across to cover the front post because that's what you should do, and he loops. He loops a header back up, and it goes in fucking like basically in off the post at the opposite corner. Keepers already come in the wrong way, and it's like David Coleman. He's like, oh, I think the keeper could have done better with that. And it's like, fuck off. There's no keeper in the world that's got to fucking save that. It's like, this is one of these fucking like sort of racist things that you only pick up fucking later. It's like, oh, well, he's a black goalkeeper. Of course, he should have done miles better with that. Is there a fucking keeper in the world that's fucking saving a fucking header like that? It's no stacks power, but the keeper's having to come to cover the fucking near post. It's like, honestly, absolutely fucking outrageous. But anyway... Uh, How many fucks were there, Paul? Did you count? Just, was it 10? <laughs> I almost I almost counted through ten. <laughs> it was anyway. Aye, absolutely fucking ridiculous. Poland game. Early had all the chances. Early had all the chances in that game, and they should they should have beat them again. And so that's what I'm saying. Early were slated in Italy for their performances in the group stage, and I'm like, they weren't actually that bad. They really weren't actually as anywhere near as bad as fucking like that was portrayed. But uh, the time they go to the second stage, it was, it's funny. It's like, because there's pictures, there's pictures of like all these Italians who've basically driven from Italy on mopeds. I'm like, ah, that's a fucking trek. That is an absolute fucking trek. Their game against Argentina, they were good. Gentile, this is this is a kind of common theme. Gentile absolutely kicks fuck out Diego Maradona. Yeah, he does just absolutely batters them. And it's just, a man marks him. A man marks him. And again, he's got Sharia playing sort of next to him and Sharia turns around and breaks up the park so many times. And yeah, it is, it, there's a really good goal by Cabrini in it. There's a really good goal by Cabrini in the Argentina game. Game against Poland, that's that's uh, that's in the semi-final. Mm-hmm. And Rossi, again, absolute poachers goals. Both of them. The second one, again, he's completely unmarked in the middle of the box. But at this point, you're fucking turning around and going, how? How has he still been completely unmarked? And again, it's just his movement. The Brazil, the Brazil game, we've, all, we've already covered it, and I've kind of covered like, the Sharia one, which I didn't think is that defensive. The Holy Italy of that tournament, I didn't think they're a particularly defensive side. We've sort of covered the final, but I, I think well worthy winners of the tournament, to be honest, by the time they finished. And it's like they were one goal away from going out in the group stages at any game. They can see one more goal and they're out at any point, and it's like, but they didn't. Go through the second one. They were the better side. They were the better side against Argentina comfortably. Against Brazil, that's when that's. I would agree they're probably the best side never to have won a World Cup. Yeah. After that, after matched them in that game. It's like I didn't think it was. A, I didn't think it was a lucky one. Going back to the memory thing, my memory of that game as an eight-year-old was that Brazil absolutely battered them, and I'm like, I watched that again as an adult, and I'm like, no. you didn't. Like Italy, Italy. 
at least matched them in that I game. Mean, this is obviously, as I mentioned before, far better documented than the Glorious Failure 82 book, which is a must read for anybody interested. But you're right, the memory and nostalgia thing. I mean, with Paul, for example, you were talking about Zico. I was starting to get fucking hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Just remembering right. how good he was. And it's not just because Zico was a brilliant player. It's because, for me especially, people always say, oh, you always wall in nostalgia. Well, it's because my family were all alive and, you know, everybody was happy and healthy and all that kind of thing. You think back. But when you talked about Zico, I thought, straight away, I'm thinking, I need to look into mirror this guy. You know, I need to fucking actually YouTube on me and stuff like that, you know? I've done looked at quite a few videos on that and the guy was incredible. Like for Flamenco and stuff as well. Flamenco's stuff as well. Like I disagree with Jose saying that he was he was never really considered the best player in the world at one point. I I, I would think going into that World Cup, Zico mm-hmm. was considered the world's best player, especially in South America anyway, because he was like he went into that tournament after a like a brilliant season. He 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 was a top scorer in the league, he got twenty one goals, he scored in the league playoffs to win the championship, but he also Scored all four goals in their, their final in the Copa Libertadores as well. Mm. Um, well and been, I, I was going to ask you about that actually. It must have been an incredible, you know, you're talking about there's only two players for the Brazil squad playing outside Brazil, therefore they're all playing Brazilian league. That must have been some fucking season, 81 82, or that quality spread about. It, it was, but it's weird as well because Flamengo were the champions, but there was no one team that dominated the squad. Mm. Like, it was, I think Flamengo had the most and only had three players. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, like, Zico, went into the he was going through a spell a few seasons. Like, 79, he scored 89 goals in a calendar year. Which, for a midfield... <laughs> That's not bad, like. Yeah. <laughs> like he's, he's a midfielder. That That's is actually sad. incredible. And then he was, like, the South American Player of the Year, like, three times in four, five years or something. So, it was 81, 82, gone into that World Cup. Mm. As you say, he was married match against Liverpool in the Intercontinental Cup. Uh, and he was just incredible. He, he had all sorts about him as well, the types of goals he scored. His free kicks were, like, obviously... Legendary, but he scored like overhead kicks and stuff as well. He was the kind of player that everybody I'd, I'd seen them um, comment about him saying he was the kind of player that everybody wanted to be in the playground. They did all the, the fancy stuff and that everybody wanted to be him. But I think as well, like talking about why he was never thought of in that bracket as like the best or considered the best, I think it's fine margins. Like he went to Udinese mm. and he scored 30 goals in 50 odd games for midfield. He performed brilliantly for them, but because he never mirrored what Maradona done with a lower team, mm-hmm. it's almost like, oh, you know, as good as him. And he probably wasn't as good as Maradona, you know what I mean? But like, he'd be in that conversation. It's not like he went to Udinese and failed. Mm-hmm. They still had a great couple of seasons by their by their standards. And they, but he went back to Flamengo pretty quickly. I don't think he'd really settled in Europe. But um, I mean, I, I mean, it's like, I mean, you know, when I was looking at Caroline Drummeniger, um, you know, people have this perception that Bayern Munich are this massively world-renowned club that's been on like that forever and it's not really the case at all talked about the early history and stuff and they were really were persecuted by the Nazis um, quite vigorously um, and, of, and at that point as well 1860 Munich were considered by far the bigger team and as I say because of their kind of basic Nazi collaboration but after Beckenbauer's side the three European Gerd Muller and all that it's a really fallow period for Bayern Munich you know they're, they're there or thereabouts they get to a final, a semi-final and all that. But they never really do anything or start to prosper again until 99, 2000-2001. Obviously, they lost the last kick of the ball at Man United. They eventually won against Valencia and stuff like that. And Rummeniger, um progressed through the ranks of Bayern Munich in terms of now he's like you know the honorary president or club president, whatever. And um, 
it's something I feel that we miss a trick in in Scotland. Where we, and I think it's because of insecure owners and chief executives. We never really have our great legends at clubs in and around the place. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, Hertz have got Gary Locke. I mean, that would be the same <laughs> thing. But, but you know what I mean? Like, selling the... You know, can you imagine if you fucking, you know, walked into Bayern Munich and went up and there's fucking Carline Drummond like, what's it? What is it you want from me, mate? Just take it, aye, you know. And, if, and whereas I feel as though you know we get cunts, you know, whoever it might be, um, like oh, I so and so, so well, this is my vision for football. Fuck, fuck off, you know. And the Dirty Beckenbauer and all that kind of thing. And and Bayern, you know, as a club, you know, as I say, I've revered them since nineteen eighty nine myself. Um, they kind of mirror German football a wee bit in terms of uh, as they were kind of pushing up again towards success. Germany was going like that, you know, in, in international football, even though they got to the final in 2002. You know, that's the kind of level you're dealing with Germany was that they seen that as a disaster. That was the point where they turned around and went, we need to entirely rip up an entire football structure and start again because this is nowhere near fucking good enough. And it's like that. You've lost a game in the World Cup last 16. It's yeah. like this is not disaster. This is not a disaster for most fucking sides, and it's like, but they were like, ah, yeah. no, this is absolutely disgraceful. You know, we need to rebuild. The period of Germany, obviously, they won it in seventy four. Um, they never had a great tournament in seventy eight, eighty two, the final, eighty six, the final, nineteen ninety, they won it. See when they got beat off of Bulgaria in the quarterfinals in ninety four, that was as big a shock as anybody had ever seen in international football. I couldn't. I mean, Lechkov, if you remember. You know, it's like Germany getting knocked out in a fucking quarter final. What the fuck is going on? I know. That was that was the first World Cup I really remember, like '94. Mm. Um, and even at that time, I was only like eight or nine, and remember everybody going nuts about that. And I, and I remember thinking, why is it such a big deal? But you, you just knew there was this big shockwave when Bulgaria beat them, and Bulgaria were a good team as well. Mm-hmm. It's it not like beat off a bunch of diddies, but just weren't expected to to lose that game in the slightest. And as you see, Jose there um, wrapping up is the you know Italian football continually mired in scandals and and whatnot. And but there was of course the incredibly golden period of the nineteen nineties where it's shown on Channel Four every Sunday. We're watching the best players in the world. I can distinctly remember a few times saying, "I'm watching Mike Galloway." And here's <laughs> Rutula. <laughs> you know what I mean? These fucking guys are just appearing on the telly and like they're actually fucking brilliant, you know what I mean? Um and that that definitely when the Serie A was definitely the best league in the world at that point. Oh fuck I I comfortably. By the way, just one very last tiny wee thing, mm-hmm. just on Pillar Rossi, because I just realised that I hadn't mentioned it. Mm-hmm. He only played two hundred and fifteen games in Serie A. Mm-hmm. That's like five, six seasons. Five six five six full seasons. It's all that he actually managed to play, and it was like that. And he was never as good as he was at the nineteen eighty two World Cup again. And I, this has gone back to the one that you'd point to, but it's like the day two years actually make the difference. Might well have done because also, he was I never mean, Paul, that sort of long. It as well, sometimes tournament. You see, Paul, that tournaments can shape players and all that. Sometimes they can elevate them to levels that they never get to again. Thinking mm-hmm. of people like Toto Scalacci, you know, right. Juventus after that. I remember uh, Man United buying Carol uh, Pabowski of the back of a great tournament in '96 uh, when he would have checked. You know, and they never. You know, and it's kind of like sometimes the right place, you know, the right temperament, the right all that just clicks together. You know, and and in the right, I think also one which is really underrated is and in the right team. Mm-hmm. It's like 
there isn't a football player in the fucking world who hasn't got some weaknesses and in a great side like they'll be covered by fucking like there are the, the players that are rude about them and you didn't notice that they've got their flaws until they actually go somewhere else and you sort of see oh fuck he can't actually do that mm. I was never aware that he couldn't do that and it's like until until that gets exposed but uh, I Paolo Rossi's tournament Paolo Rossi that year won the fucking won the golden ball like so international player of the year European football of the year absolutely everything fucking missed half the season because he was banned for a betting scandal <laughs> <laughs> incredible alright we'll uh, wrap that up there folks that was 1982 Spain it was very brightly coloured it was very much part of myself and Jose's life as Paul was still swinging about his dad's ball sack but uh, we hope you enjoyed it we will deep dive into something again soon or not so soon but you know what I mean and uh, we just hope that for you know like us you want to wallow in nostalgia because modern football is rubbish Trying to find Rubash and look at Shirea here. It's two against two, but Altabelli has gone. No, he hasn't gone offside. He's checked. This is Conti. It's Rossi. It's Shirea. It's Magoni. It's Shirea. They're appealing for offside, not given. Shirea right across to Marco Tardelli. Thanks for listening to our España 82 World Cup special. Uh, it's something we hope to bring more of to you in the coming months, and it won't always be international tournaments either. So stay tuned, and thanks for listening. <laughs>